Good morning. Welcome to New Covenant Bible Church on this cold morning. Uh, as Joel was just praying, we're continuing our series in the Gospel of John. So if you want to turn in your Bible to John chapter 2, we'll be looking at the entirety of uh, John chapter 2 this morning. Pray with me. Lord, we commit the preaching of your word to you. Give us ears to hear what you have to say and eyes to see the greatness of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So we are in, a ser- in the midst of a sermon series on John 1 through 12, and we're doing this sermon series because we want to know Jesus better. Well, that's pretty simple. We want to love him more. We want to trust him more deeply. We want to follow him more closely. We want to know Jesus. And that's why we're doing this focus series on the Gospel of John. The title of today's sermon is, What is Faith? That's an important question for all of us to Uh, ask and answer. And the answer to that question is kind of like the gospel of John itself. Let me explain what I mean. Um, The answer to the question, what is faith, is on one hand very simple and straightforward. A young child can understand and experience faith. The idea of simply trusting in someone believing what they say, who they are. In the same way, the Gospel of John is a very simple and straightforward book of the Bible. Its message is very simple. It's summed up in John 20, verse 31, where it says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Very simple. And yet at the same time, the Gospel of John has these layers of depth and meaning. So that as you read through it a second time and a third time and a fourth time, you're seeing themes that are coming out and subtle things that John is doing in his Gospel. So I'd encourage you uh, over the next several weeks to really dig into this book. There's so much there. And I'm so glad we're doing this reading plan together. And it's a chance for us together to dig into the riches of the the gospel of John. This gospel really is like a bottomless treasure chest. There's so much there for us to discover. But it's the same with the answer to the question, what is faith? The, The answer to that question also has layers of depth and meaning. You see, What does it really mean to trust in God? Is there a type of faith that is real and genuine? And also a type of faith that is superficial and fake? And if so, what's the difference between those two things? What really is faith? faith in Jesus. 
And what John chapter 2 is going to help us do is it's going to help us answer that question, what is faith? So again, turn to John chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 25. What is faith? Here's answer number 1 from verses 1 through 11. Faith is believing in Jesus as generous joy giver. Faith is believing in Jesus as generous joy giver. We see this aspect of faith in the story of Jesus turning water into wine. This is one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. Uh, Even if you're not a Christian, don't go to church very much, you've probably heard about this story or have kind of a general sense of what what happens here with the story of water into wine. But maybe you've never really thought deeply about how it's actually presented in John chapter 2 and what we are supposed to hear today from this story. So let's dig into it. John chapter 2, starting with verse 1. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus, her son, and his disciples have been invited to a wedding. And the wedding seems to be going great, except for one big problem. The wine has run out. And this is a big deal in a culture where it would have been to the groom's great shame to run out of wine at a wedding that he's hosting. Uh, Maybe you've been to a wedding or a party where something has run out, maybe food. And it can be an awkward and embarrassing situation. But we need to multiply the awkwardness of that by 10 as we're thinking back to the culture of Jesus' day, which was an honor-shame culture. This is a big deal. Now, Mary's husband, Joseph, had probably passed away by the time of this wedding. And so Mary, as a widow, would have relied on her son, Jesus, in her husband's absence. And so they're at this wedding in this difficult situation, and Mary turns to Jesus, her son, to do something about the lack of, of wine. And so she simply says to Jesus, they have no wine. And Jesus responds in this kind of mysterious way, woman, what does this have to do with me? Literally in the original language, it's what to me and to you. So Bible commentator D.A. Carson says that Jesus isn't being disrespectful and calling his mother woman. It probably is something like our modern day ma'am. But he is distancing himself from her as his mother. Now, why is, he, why is Jesus distancing himself from Mary as his mother? Here's why. Because the agenda for Jesus' life does not come from his mother, but from his father who is in heaven. That who is who is calling the shots in his life. So turn with me to John chapter 6, verse 38. John 6, 38 makes very clear 
Who's calling the shots in Jesus' life? Who's telling Jesus where to go and what to do? John 6.38 says, For I, Jesus says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So here's Jesus at this wedding, and what he's thinking about is what is the will of my Father in heaven in this situation? It's not like he doesn't care about the embarrassing situation or it's a lack of interest in helping. Because Jesus essentially says, what is the lack of wine to me? Why, Mary, are you involving me in this situation? And then he says, my hour has not yet come. See, in the Gospel of John, the hour of Jesus very often refers to God's plan for when he will die and then be raised from the dead. And although Jesus' death will be terrible and painful and shameful, it's also the time when Jesus will be the most glorified, when his greatness will be most clearly seen on the cross and in his resurrection. So Jesus realizes at this wedding, this isn't the time for that. And so he makes it seem like he's not going to get himself involved. And yet, nonetheless, as we'll read in just a minute here, he does decide to get involved. And here's what I believe is going on. I believe that Jesus sees his disciples there and he wants them to believe in him. And so he decides to perform this miracle to draw out the faith of his disciples in him. Let's read about how it unfolds. Verse 5, John chapter 2, verse 5. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, that's not a bad life motto, is it? Do whatever he tells you. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So, Mary tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. And notice that in verses 6 through 7, look at verses 6 through 7, the highlight is on the amount of wine that Jesus produces. So if you can imagine it, there's these big stone water jars, and six of them are lined up. And each stone water jar holds 20 to 30 gallons of water. So if you do the math, that's around 100 and 50 gallons of water. And they're filled up to the brim and then they're turned into wine. 150 gallons of wine. That is, needless to say, a lot of wine. Verses 8 and 9 highlight the quality of the wine that Jesus produces. Uh, the master of the feast, who probably would have been kind of a wine connoisseur in some ways, he comments that essentially this wine is better than the best wine which is served first at a wedding like this. 
It's the best of the best wine. So Jesus, just imagine it. Here's the Son of God now on earth. He's at a party. He's at a wedding. And he works a miracle that produces an overflowing amount of the very best wine for this wedding. Now, if we read from Genesis to Revelation and we looked at all the spots that wine is talked about, what we would notice is that wine is very often tied to joy. Wine is a means of bringing joy to the heart. For example, Psalm 4-7 says, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Wine is tied to joy. So throughout the Old Testament, wine and joy are often linked together. In fact, many Old Testament prophecies look forward to a day when God will come to be with his people and he will cause their hearts to overflow with joy and gladness. But what is also talked about in these prophecies of the end time is wine. So listen to Isaiah 25, verse 6. On the mountain of the Lord of hosts, on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. So the picture here is God is the host of this party and he's got this feast, a feast of well-aged wine, of, full, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And now here is Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, producing what we might call well-aged wine. It's a picture of Jesus fulfilling the end-time prophecy of great joy coming to God's people. It's a picture of Jesus bringing to anyone who believes in him the joy and satisfaction and contentment and comfort that our hearts have always longed for. This is what Jesus came to do. You see, our hearts and souls are so empty when we look around at this world to be filled up. But Jesus came into this world as the generous joy giver. And and the only place that we can find ultimate joy and satisfaction is in Jesus. Do you believe that from, from your heart? This is why Jesus performed this miracle, to point to himself, not just as miracle worker, not just as son of God, but as the one who can bring a joy into our lives that nothing else can bring. This is what our Savior can do for us. So look at verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So what does this passage teach us about faith? Because you saw right there at the end, this is the point. The disciples believed in him. What do we learn about faith? It teaches us that we should believe in Jesus as the giver of joy. And not as someone who can give us stuff that will make us glad. But as one who in himself is our joy. Jesus is our greatest delight, our greatest satisfaction. And the one who believes in him must believe in him, not just as Savior and Lord, but also as treasure. As our highest joy. 
as the one who can bring us the deepest satisfaction. This is at the heart of faith. What is faith? Faith is believing in Jesus as generous joy giver. Number two, faith is believing in Jesus as trustworthy truth teller. Faith is believing in Jesus as trustworthy truth teller. Look at again at John 2, starting in verse 12. And we'll read about how Jesus zealously clears out commerce from the temple. John 2, verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. D.A. Carson summarizes what's going on here in the temple and why Jesus was so zealous Uh, at what was going on here. He explains it this way. Instead of solemn dignity and the murmur of prayer going on in the temple, there is the bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition, holy adoration and prolonged petition, there is noisy commerce. The temple is... it's. What is going on there is not what is supposed to be going on there, which is worship of the living God. Instead, there's commerce. And as an explanation of Jesus' bold actions, John writes that his disciples remember something. They remember a passage of scripture where it says, zeal for your house will consume me. And they watch Jesus driving these people out of the temple and they say, oh, that's him. That's Jesus. Zealous for God, zealous for God's name, zealous for God's house. Jesus loves his heavenly father and cares deeply about his place, if his place of worship are being taken lightly. Just imagine Jesus burning with zeal for God's name and God's worship. And may we be like Jesus in this way, in never trivializing what should be treated with weightiness and reverence. May we never trifle with God or with what he says is holy. Jesus still today is very, very zealous for the honor and glory of his Father. And what we see here in this episode is that the people of Israel and the temple are absolutely failing at what they're supposed to be doing. And Jesus is coming in and he's saying, I'm bringing something totally new. And the Jewish people, they do not like that. And so they want Jesus out. So let's read about that in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you do? Or what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up 
in three days? So they, the Jews asked Jesus two questions. Question number one, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus, if you're going to act with such authority in the temple, we want you to perform a miracle to back up your authority. And Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, what he does is he points forward to the greatest sign, the greatest miracle in the gospel of John. You say, what is, what is that greatest miracle in the gospel of John? We might say it like this. The greatest sign in the gospel of John is temple destruction and rebuilding. Because Jesus responds to this question by saying, destroy this temple. Look at verse 19. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now the Jews are completely confused. And they, so they ask a second question. Will you rebuild in three days what it took 46 years to build? And we get no recorded answer from Jesus to this question, but we get a very helpful interpretation from the author, John, when he says in verse 21, look at verse 21, he was speaking about the temple of his body. See, the body of Jesus was a temple, a holy and pure and righteous place. The body of Jesus was the place where God was adored and loved and revered. And this body was destroyed when Jesus died on the cross. Destroy this temple, Jesus says. And in three days, I will raise it up. So three days later, the body of Jesus rose from the grave. This temple was rebuilt as Jesus powerfully rose from the dead. And this is the greatest sign in the Gospel of John, which shows Jesus as the Lamb of God, the Son of God, the Christ, the King, the Savior of the world. And so Jesus has authority now to do what the temple was intended to do, which is to bring reconciliation between a holy God and sinful people. In other words, because of his death and resurrection, Jesus is the only way you can get right with God. He is the only means of reconciliation and of peace with God. So if you've never trusted in this Jesus before, I would urge you to put your faith in the only one who can save you. And his name is Jesus. And he is a great, great savior. Let's keep reading in verse 21 as the story progresses. Again, he was speaking about the temple of his body. Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So again, we come back to faith. And Jesus is doing what he's doing to help his disciples to believe in him more fully. Say, well, what does this passage teach us specifically about faith? What aspect of faith is focused on here? Well, it's faith in the scripture, the Old Testament, and in the words of Jesus. See verse 22. You see, when Jesus rose from the dead, his disciples remembered, 
what happened at the temple. And they remembered Jesus saying, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it. And then they saw Jesus actually die and rise from the dead and their faith was strengthened in the words of Jesus that what he says comes true, that his word is faithful and trustworthy and their faith in Christ was bolstered and strengthened because they saw that Christ's words are trustworthy. He's a truth teller. And so we today are simply called to very simply trust what Jesus says. Whatever to say, whatever Jesus says, whatever the word of God says, I trust that. I believe that. I stake my life on that. You say, what kind of words did Jesus say to us that we can trust in? Well, here are a few. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you believe that? Believe that. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Do you believe that? Let's believe that together. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Let's believe these words together. The Gospel of John says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Do you believe that? Let's believe these words as trustworthy and true and stake our lives upon them. What is faith? Faith is believing in Jesus as generous joy giver. Number two, faith is believing in Jesus as trustworthy truth teller. Answer number three, faith is believing in Jesus, not primarily in what he can do for you. See, faith, real faith, is trust in a real living person. And there is a type of faith that is not genuine faith in that person. And so we'll learn about that now as we read these searching words in John 2, 23 through 25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Now what strikes me is those words in verse 23 where it says many believed in him, in his name. But there apparently is a type of faith that Jesus does not accept. Jesus withholds himself from people who have this type of faith. And this isn't me speaking. This is all I'm saying is what's here in John 2. See, there's a deep resistance to God that we're all born with. And throughout the Gospel of John, it's called darkness or sin. But way deep down in our hearts, we're all born actually completely separated from God 
and not wanting his presence or rule in our lives. And that resistance truly is way deep down in us. Later in the Gospel of John, it says, man loved the darkness rather than the light. And Jesus knows this about people. He knows you and me completely. And so when people believe with a superficial type of faith, he refuses to entrust himself to those people. And this is why the Bible urges us to examine ourselves to see whether we are truly in the faith and to test ourselves. There may even be some in here today who think that they believe in Jesus truly but don't actually have genuine faith in Christ. Your heart hasn't yet been awakened to the beauty of Jesus. Some may think that they're trusting in Jesus today, but the reality is that in your heart of hearts, there's not a love for Christ. You like the idea of Jesus. Maybe you like what he could potentially do for you. This kind of faith doesn't last. It's a superficial kind of faith. It's, a, it's the type of faith that says, I'll add Jesus onto my life. Uh, as long as he helps better my life in the here and now in some way. I'll add Jesus to my life as an optional extra as long as he doesn't expect to become my life. Like the very center. My all. Now, this is a challenging passage to talk about because some in here are prone to doubt, but you have genuine faith. But others, and this is what this passage here is getting at, are perhaps prone to confidence but you don't yet have genuine faith in Christ. So you say, I'm thinking about my life now and my heart and where I'm at with the Lord and I'm wondering if I've not truly repented and trusted in Christ yet, what do I do? Well, here is what I would urge you to do. Pray. Just talk to God. Ask him to change your heart, because there's another theme that runs through the Gospel of John, and it is this faith is a gift of God. And so I'll finish with this verse in John 6 44. If you turn there with me, I want you to see it. John 6 44. There Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. See, faith is a gift from God, and so we can call out to God to say, Lord, give me that gift of faith, and then to actually look to Jesus to trust in him. Or if you say, I've been a believer for many years, to say, Lord, would you renew and strengthen and invigorate my faith in you because maybe it's been a long time since you've been 
closely walking with the Lord. And you need to ask him today to, to refresh and renew that faith in Jesus. Let's pray together.